efficient use of our time. Um, well, yes, I'm Loretta Honeycutt. It's nice to have all of you here. Thank you, thank you for coming. Uh, I, what, I teach here at Pepperdine um, a wide array of history classes, but this is my labor of love that I really enjoy doing, which is researching more and more about women in the history of the Church of Christ. Um, the piece you're going to see today is a sliver, a little slice of the larger work I'm doing, attempting to put together a whole history of women's leadership in the Church of Christ. And I'll tell you more about why I chose that angle and what I'm trying to do with this. But I suppose my question began with, I noticed there's really nothing out there that tells us what the role of women has actually been in the churches. And so I started with that question, what were they doing? <laughs> Not what should they be doing, what ought they to be doing, though that may come out of what I find, I don't know, that's not really for me to determine. I'm more interested in what did they do, and how can I communicate that, in, and, under, and communicate to people the context for that. Um, my background is, uh, I, in addition to being a historian, I've also taught a lot of women's studies classes, so I think if I bring anything to this project that hasn't been brought before to looking at the history of women in the church, it's, it's bringing in my women's studies background too, that allows me to analyze things like gender, in a certain context, um, just to elicit everything we can from that. But anyway, I don't want to digress too much on that. Let me tell you a little bit about this presentation today. Um, here are the goals I want to do. Um, I wanted to note first, this is a work in progress. I mean, I'm editing this even this morning. I'm still thinking about it. Um, I'm mainly a historian of the 19th century, so I'm pushing myself into the 20th now. That's one of the reasons I took on this topic, because I want to write the whole thing. Um, and I'm to finish that book someday. Um, so this is very much a work in progress. I'm still thinking it all through. But um, part of what we're going to do today is I'll give you a little introduction to the methodology I'm using and what I'm doing with women in the Churches of Christ. And as identifying them as bridge leaders, um, I'm borrowing a concept from another scholar that I'll talk about in a little bit. And I also want to today reflect the diversity of women's leadership. There were people of different racial backgrounds, national origins, doctrinal beliefs. I'm going to try to throw in a little bit from each of those. Because we can say churches of Christ, but that encompasses a whole well of a lot of people, really. Different types of people, even. Um, and then, more specifically, in this era, uh, what we'll be looking at are some themes that, honestly, you could say about almost any era, but some that are very unique to this era. It's a little blend. So I'm going to do a little bit of each. It, among the unique ones would certainly be volunteering for war-related activities that, that also involve the church. That, that connection there, a little nexus there, that's part of what will be happening in the 40s that women led in. Also a certain amount of evangelism and teaching, that one's kind of an interesting one, how that came about, we'll talk a little bit about that. Also journalism, and then particularly missionary work. I, I'm gonna focus on Asia and Africa, you could say a lot of things about all over the world, because um, certainly in the immediate post-war era, um, there's an explosion in missionary work all over the world. But, I'll talk about those areas. Those are the areas of some of the most activity. Okay. Um, now, I start with talking about this concept, of especially Stone Camel women in general, the, the broader movement, as bridge leaders. This is the principle I've kind of taken to um, using to describe um, some of the activities of women in the church. Because it dawned on me after a while um, that this was the right kind of phrase to use. Though I'm still kind of playing around with it in my mind. So in, I want to save some time for questions and answers. I'll hear from you guys what you think. 
Um, but essentially, I've chosen this as the focus. I, you know, here I set out to write this book. Okay, I'm going to write about the history of women in the social health movement. Then I realized, wow, that's a really good topic. <laughs> and it's going to need some kind of focus um, to kind of give it something that people can follow. What kind of story am I going to tell about that? Because there's been practically nothing said. I don't even have anything to respond to, you know, in terms of what other people have said. There's not much. So um, I had used a book in class often by Belinda Rubnett um, that's actually about um, African American women in the Civil Rights Movement and what she claimed about these women. I think I elaborated on that next. Yeah. She's talking, she called them bridge leaders, which she first applied to these women in the civil rights movement. Um, and here, as I go about defining it, we can first note, it is pretty similar to a grassroots leader. That's another term that she used. Um, and what she described is leadership from behind the scenes, that it's private. It kind of operates outside of structures and hierarchies. Um, and that most bridge leaders, but not all, men can operate this way as well, but um, that most bridge leaders are women. This tends to be how women have led in a variety of formats. And what she had to say about the Civil Rights Movement, I realized, oh, that's really like what happened in the Stone Campbell Movement too. She said they played a key role in building and sustaining the movement. It was women who went in various communities and convinced people, you need to come to this march for your own rights. Um, this is why. This is what we can do. They're, they're going door to door, getting people there. You don't have a movement if you don't have that. <coughs> and ironically, women play the same role in the Church of Christ, even to, down to the similarity of going door to door, convincing people to come to church. Um, so similar. And so it really inspired me. Like, I want to use some of the same stuff she does. Okay. So I decided, this is a way I can get at what kind of role women have played in the history of the Churches of Christ. What have they done? Call it that, and then look at how that played out. Now, how does this bridge leadership differ from what we might call traditional leadership? Uh, and so I created this chart to give you a sense of what kinds of things I'm going to be talking about, and then we'll look at specific examples. So differences between bridge leaders and traditional leaders is visibility. I mentioned this a little bit. Bridge leaders tend to operate privately behind the scenes very unnoticeable in many cases, whereas traditional leadership more public. People know who the traditional leaders are, but they may not know bridge leaders by name. They might. In some cases, they might. Not. So again, about gender, the bridge leaders tend to be mostly female. Traditional leaders tend to be mostly male. Um, in terms of race as well, bridge leaders tend to be white and black, whereas traditional leaders mostly white. Um, relation, relationship to institutions. So bridge leaders tend to be unpaid, untitled, outside of institutions. They are influential, but they're not in authority. Uh, whereas traditional leaders, we would call them kind of institutionalized. They're paid, they're elected, they have a title, they're very authoritative. Um, so I gave you examples of what would be each. Um, we talk things like preacher's wives. Technically not really a title, right? You don't get paid for that, really? I mean, we call it a title, but and we have an expectation of what that is, but in theory it's not. And yet, very good example of a bridge leader, in a way. Um, ministry leaders, yeah, that's a more modern terminology, I think. I mean, they might as well be, you know, well, anyway, that's a whole other issue I got, but. Um, mothers, Sunday school teachers, church founders, these, these are all roles that are played kind of behind the scenes, that don't always get front and center, but are pivotal in the life of our movement. And then, traditional leaders, I put in, you know, these are things like preachers, elders, maybe deacons, those, 
um, those kinds of titles. That everybody would know who they are. There's a list of them, you know, somewhere in your church or on your um, church bulletin or wherever. But you don't see the list of these other people often. Sometimes, maybe. All right. Now, um, this is where it gets kind of interesting. In many ways, there were a lot of barriers to women's leadership in the Churches of Christ. This is where Churches of Christ are kind of unique, especially in comparison to most other religious groups um, in this era, particularly Protestant groups that I would compare them to in American religious history. Some of those are just cultural influences. Um, I know, in, in historically, I think Churches of Christ kind of tried to claim they were all historical, not impacted by anything, we're just our own thing. <laughs> I'm like, that's not possible. We are all a product of the environment that shapes us, whether you think you are or not. You don't have to be conscious of it for it to be happening. Um, so I put in there just a few things that I think are relevant. So church, mostly Southern, that was a huge impact. on a lot of Southern identity in Churches of Christ. Um, rural, working class, those kind of overlap a little bit with the Southern part. Um, and there was a mentality there that really shaped a lot of things. Theology um, and you know gender roles. Now, I'm not saying that that means everything that people believed in the Churches of Christ was then just purely a function of who they were culturally. I'm not saying that. Um, there were other influences as well, theologically and everything. But you can't deny the cultural impact as well. Um, now, I, I also note, uh, and this will have a huge impact on women and their leadership. Women struggle with leadership in the South in general. Um, and so that's going to naturally come out in Church of Christ as well, at least in terms of public leadership. And the approach to scripture is important too. I call it a little bit selectively literal. Because um, <laughs> 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 so, it's not consistently literal. Uh, but it was in a way selectively literal in the things that already conform to the cultural expectations. Yeah. <laughs> we'll pick those. Oh yeah, those are definitely supposed to be literal. If it doesn't conform to what we expect culturally, then no, 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 that's you know, something else. That only applied you know, somewhere else. Um, now, what that meant is you're going to look at, you know, women must be silent. Oh, that's perfectly literal. That absolutely must be true. Um, and that was a challenge for women to overcome scriptures like that when that was the ethos. Uh, we're going to be literal about some of these things. Um, but here's a key one, too, which kind of relates to all these others. A lot of opposition to parachurch or benevolent organizations. These were the places in the rest of American culture that women commonly found their most important leadership opportunities. Um, and so the, to the extent that the Churches of Christ rejected those as unscriptural, as undermining the church, that made it much more difficult for women to develop leadership as they would in other parts of American society. Uh, I often wondered if that's partly why the Church of Christ rejected them, because if you do have these benevolent institutions, that's where women did tend to exert leadership, which made people uncomfortable, which made them think we shouldn't have those. I think it was kind of a reinforcing thing um, in that sense. So, so in other words, they were partly rejected because they tended to be dominated by women. And this is very overt in some publications that were, say, anti-Sunday school. We can't have those because then women are teaching in their own, and that's bad. And so that was why some people rejected Sunday schools. That was one major reason. Um, so that's my evidence a little bit for that about some of these other these others, um, institutions. Well, the other thing that happens is when you define leadership, and this is probably globally true, when leadership is synonymous with power, it doesn't have to be, by the way, but when it is, that really overlooks
most what Christians are supposed to support, which is servanthood. We don't really do that a lot of the time. Sometimes, not really. But that would tend to deny recognition of women's actual leadership as well, because they don't have power per se, or not or aren't supposed to. I crack up sometimes when I'm reading some of the 19th century debates about women's roles, and one of them that was a problem for a few people was uh, a lot of churches were voting on their leadership, you know, like who might be elders and all. And then, and then one guy finally, and I, I'd always wondered about this, like, didn't you realize this could be a problem? He said, wait a minute, 70% of the church is women, that means women are picking the leaders. Yeah. <gasps> <laughs> all kinds of problems with that. <laughs> so some of these, it's just kind of, I, I kind of chuckled at that one. Oh, your democratic principles are crashing right into your general issues there. So, what I want to say about the significance of these are, these barriers make women's leadership really more harder to see, especially for historians, but not necessarily non-existent. Women are always going to have an impact. Um, it's just, as, for me as a historian, I know since a lot of it is informal, behind the scenes, how do I document that? Where do I go to find that out? It's really hard, I'll tell you. I've got my little cheats. I've read now a couple hundred congregational histories and always look for more, because every once in a while there's a paragraph in there, this woman did this, or this church was founded by a group of women. You know, and I'm taking note on all those. Um, it's hard to find this out. So that's why I think a lot of what we think we know about the past is merely because of the sources we have. Too much. Understand it. Cookbooks. Yeah, that's too much. I, I, just women are doing all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, cookbooks are another source. Mm -hmm. and, um, so all kinds of sources. And another thing I've discovered is a database called newspapers.com. It's a wonderful thing. It has thousands of newspapers full of text. And I search for different congregations. And every once in a while, there's a little report about a woman who's part of that church that did this interesting thing. Um, so I'll just collect all those little by little. I'll show you some examples of things I've found in some of those ways. All right, well, to get to the meat of it, though, I want to say at least a little bit about this. Um, in terms of the war itself, that's the context I'm looking at for the 1940s. And the war did have an impact. Um, I'm not going to delve into a lot of the specifics of that, but I think much of it you could understand. That's where I got my title from, this idea of all hands on deck. <laughs> it was true in the churches, it was true in culture. The, um, the Second World War really opened up, and this, when I teach American history, I really emphasize this. It was a real turning point for American culture in terms of all of a sudden, all that restrictive thing on certain groups of Americans looked more like Nazism than it did like being a good democratic society. And there were people who took advantage of that and said, hey, we need a better society here. We need to include everybody. And there was just a sense of national emergency, you know, this existential war. We must win. All of a sudden, it didn't make much sense to just exclude large swaths of people from participating and helping the war effort. So there's all that swirling around. And it impacts, it impacts churches, too. Now, for Churches of Christ, there was still a challenge. Remember, they, they don't like non-church institutions. Um, the belief was, I'll summarize this really briefly, um, that the church should be everything. Um, you don't need any institution outside of the church. It should do the charity, it should do the teaching, every single thing, and any other organization. And that church must be controlled by elders. All right, so by definition, you can't have anything outside of the church. It's all controlled by elders. That left women in a bit of a pickle when you think about it because it left very little room to do anything at all, um, other than maybe carry out orders. Now, I'm, there were things they managed to do. However, the war chipped away at that a little bit, because that sense of national emergency, and you do get people who um, begin to engage in a few charitable activities outside of the church, you know, and, and start organizing in that way. 
And, and to a certain extent, I think you can make the case for why churches should be active. I'm not trying to undermine that necessarily. It just presented a challenge um, for organizing um, in, in, in a broader sense, this, this radical focus on the church. Well, I mean, some examples. Um, I know, for instance, Helen Pepperdine led blood drives on Pepperdine campus during the war, um, which was not something that was maybe a typical activity among church. They tended to mistrust those institutions like the Red Cross. Part of that, again, is that southern outsider mentality a little bit, that those all seem like northern things that you do in urbanized areas. So that's certainly part of it. But the war kind of chips away at that a little bit, I think. Um, and then another one I stumbled across. The women of Mule Shoe, Texas, congregation began making cakes, cookies, and candy for the soldiers at Camp Barkley, which is near Abilene. It's one of the largest camps in history of the U.S., right outside of Abilene. And note what one of the um, Church Christ missionaries working among the soldiers there said about their activities. Sending candy and cake may seem like a little thing, but it does have good effects. We have already received words of thanks for our work that proves to us that good is being done. They were evangelizing when they didn't. And this is, I think this probably happened more often than not, but documenting it, really hard. Nobody thinks to write about that. They just talk about the men preaching among them, but not about that it's actually the women who give them the entree um, into that by you know, sending the gifts and initiating that, and then the men following along. It was really a partnership. I mean, that's really what it was. But we don't hear about the other half of that partnership. Because um, the men have the power, and you think, well, that's who we focus on. Um, now, uh, other things though, evangelism and teaching. Um, this is kind of interesting. I think, though this is not overt in this story, I got this out of partly out of the Christian Chronicle and then with some digging found the rest of the story. There's a woman named Grace Wilson from Dallas, Texas. Um, and I don't know that I've run across exactly which congregation she was with at the time, I can't remember now, but um, there's an article in the Christian Chronicle in 1944 um, you know, one of the longest running Church Christ publications. And um, essentially, there, it was a thank you letter from these churches in Utah, um, thanking um, folks for sending Grace Wilson out there to organize their campaign that they had conducted to bring in more, uh, more people into the churches there all over Utah. I was like, what is that about? <laughs> I, I had to go, you know, I wonder what she did. And it took me a while to figure it out. But I finally, in the Firm Foundation, found more information. She wrote a whole series of articles in the Firm Foundation where she described what they did. It was her and an army of about 15 women went door to door in cities throughout Utah, convincing people to come to the meetings that they were going to hold, different debates with other religious groups and um, preaching and a whole wide array of activities we had. They went door to door inviting people, handing a tract to them about you know what was going on. They also set up appointments for the preachers to come in after and meet with families that were interested in meeting with a preacher. Um, and apparently kept those preachers there pretty busy. Um, and that's what they did. Uh, I found that to be exactly what was happening in other areas of American life. And think about if you just hold the meeting without their work, is it going to be that successful? No. So this work is pivotal. And it, but I'm not trying to say, oh, it's more important. You know, I don't think either work is actually more important, what men are doing or what women are doing. It, I, I guess I see it more as a partnership. But we don't hear that part of the story about how pivotal that was. And this, and this happened all over the nation. I just have to find this one as an example. 
Um, and I think it's a great example of rich leadership. I think it's a great example of how we have to recognize that women's efforts were just as important in building up the churches of Christ as men's were, without necessarily being exactly the same. Now, another example, Mary Brooks um, in Opelika, Alabama, um, invited Brother Sutton Johnson to conduct a gospel meeting in her community, helped fund it. Um, this was among black congregations in Alabama. Uh, and so same thing. Is this just one small example? I could give you a hundred. You know, women say, hey, we need a campaign here. And they raise the money and get the preacher to come in. Go door to door. Get people to come in. That's how it worked. Um, so I say, you know, they're just as important in that whole evangelism phase as were the male preachers. Um, another one that's happening, Sunday schools. A little more controversial in some quarters of the movement, but these start emerging as early as the late 19th century, but increasingly common by the 20th century. Um, although in some places they don't really take hold until the post-war era. Um, and common in both black and white churches. Um, and what's interesting about these Sunday schools, if you read a preacher biography, you've got at least a 50-50 chance that it was a woman teaching him in Sunday school that said you should be a preacher. If you, I've read a lot of preacher biographies, that's how it plays out. <laughs> and I think sometimes they just don't mention it, but that may happen. <laughs> um, in other words, women often recruited and trained the future preachers. And you can see examples of that all over the place in some of the, I, I meant to get a list of the names, and, um, but just, you, I guess if you take my word for it, there's quite a few out there that that's what happened. Now, um, for white women, they did frequently face <coughs> significant restrictions on even you know, teaching in Sunday school. I mean, many of you are probably aware of this debate. One of the debates was, how old did a boy have to be before a woman couldn't teach him anymore? I always thought, God, you know, how do you work that out? Like, as soon as they hit their 12th birthday, bam, nope, can't do it. Always thought, how does that work? I think in our minds that doesn't make as much sense today. Made more sense then, I guess. Um, so in other words, there were these debates about it. You know, certainly they can't teach adult men. Although, ironically, there were some people that didn't have a problem with it. David Lipscomb was among them. He defined all the scriptures that restricted women as only the worship time, that hour on Sunday morning. And he said, Sunday school doesn't count, basically, is what he said. So he didn't have this huge problem with women teaching men um, quite as much. Maybe he's an educator. Maybe that made more sense to him. Um, he wasn't quite as worried about it as some. So it would depend on the situation. You, sometimes you had wide-ranging ability for women to teach all levels of Sunday school. Other times it was much more restricted. I found it interesting that black women were, were more often encouraged to teach, particularly in the absence of qualified men. And this may be because um, teaching was such a viable occupation for black women among the few that were viable, that there was more opportunity for them to gain the education and be able to exert that role, and it naturally spilled over into the church, which really wanted that kind of education um, in the churches. That was much more a key issue for black churches than for white churches. Um, and so that really opened up a role. And G.P. Bowser, the editor of Christian Echo, the one of the most important publications for Black Churches of Christ, really championed that role in that newspaper, and so therefore I think brought a lot of support for it. So with these two things about evangelism and teaching, I'm just trying to say, look, you know, most female roles behind the scenes, but crucial in sustaining the churches um, in the 40s. Okay, now, um, journalism, another one. This is one of those perennial roles. Um, I make the case first that Journalism is so significant in Churches of Christ. In a way, it replaces the denominational structure. Mm -hmm. That in universities, one might say. Mm -hmm. I mean, here you are, Hubbard High, 
incredible lectures, mm -hmm. draws thousands of people. So it's not a denominational meeting per se, but it's pretty similar. <laughs> different. Now, I guess the main difference is that nobody's making decisions here that are incumbent on anyone else to implement or anything. You don't have that kind of structure, but it's the same general concept. They are, but they're yeah, right. right. We just don't say it. Right? <laughs> Sometimes there are too. Well, what people hear at the lectures they take back to their congregations, yeah. it shapes things, right? Yeah. Well, the famous quip is we didn't have bishops, we had editors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the same point. Yeah, the whole editor bishops thing, yes. And so I say here, you know, it really allows for communication among the churches. Um, it was a forum for debating issues. Because after all, how do you have a cohesive movement if you don't have a place where you're hashing things out? Mm -hmm. You had to have that, or else you don't really have any kind of cohesion. You're all just out there wandering around. Mm -hmm. um, that's what happened. Now, during the war, there's quite a shortage of male authors. A lot of them are off doing other things, many of them in the military. Um, and that really opened doors for women, particularly in the Christian echo um, that, I, that I referenced before. We'll say more about that in a little bit. And then you had growing needs on missionary fields for publicity and recruitment. Um, and that also fell to women. I mean, you have men are you know, doing their thing, wandering around preaching in the mission field. Well, who's going to write home to get more money? Who's going to write home to recruit more workers? That was women. Um, so I'll give you a few examples. Here's the Christian Echo. Um, there's a sample page, what it looked like. Um, I'll say, you know, white women publish regularly in most Church of Christ journals. There are some exceptions. There are a few that did not um, incorporate women writers. Some wrote on similar topics to men, you know, theology, culture, you know, whatever the issues of the day are, whether it's anti-drinking, anti-dancing, you know, you, you got, you know, they wrote on those things too. But most of them wrote more about family, home, women in the Bible, you know, so there were unique topics there. Um, and they kind of filled in a gap during the war, you know, you gotta have content to keep the publication going. It was even more crucial for the Christian Echo. I, this is really noticeable if you flip through pages of the Christian Echo, it, it becomes like 80% women. And then once the war ends, back up to 80% men. <laughs> there's, there's this very noticeable time period. Um, so, and, and among the changes during the 40s too, Annie Tuggle, um, and if you don't know much about her, oh, I can say a lot. She's one of the most important women in the history of the Church of Christ, particularly among black churches, but just in general, really. Um, she wrote her autobiography, which is basically like a history of Churches of Christ, uh, particularly black congregations. She joined the journal staff officially in 1942. Um, very dynamic woman. Um, she raised thousands and thousands of dollars for educational institutions, um, wrote and taught, and it took her until well into her 30s, I think it was, to get an education because of all the restrictions. Um, that she faced, poverty, racial discrimination, you name it, she faced it, um, an abusive husband, the whole list. Um, but she pulled it up eventually, achieved her education after decades of trying, um, and was very prominent in the Christian Echo among other institutions. Now, I, I also noticed the Christian Echo, women pretty much published on the same topic as men. There's not much distinction there. Uh, and moreover, um, you'll see if you look at the Christian Echo, um, one of the key features of that, um, not necessarily unique to the Christian Echo, but very interesting, are, are reports from individual congregations about what's happening there. And at least half of those are written by women. Again, maybe because of that extra access to education, they were the ones that were more likely to be able to read and write, and therefore able to report back. But what a key role um, in promoting that cohesion of here, we're all a body. Here's what's going on in our church. It's like what's happening where you are. 
um, they played a really key role in that. Um, so they're, particularly for the Christian Echo, women are at the center of that role of journalism in promoting cohesion among the churches. Um, now missionary work, uh, the need for labor, as there always is, I suppose, when you're talking about missionary work, um, but especially during the war, really opens doors for women. Um, the Churches of Christ came into overseas missionary work kind of in the late 19th century, but it's really taking off 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, what kind of roles are there? Raising funds, translating. Often it was women doing these things, partly because, like I said, the men are off preaching, and you need someone else you know, that can do these things. They did a lot of medical work as nurses. You do have a few male doctors who would go in the mission field, but usually every mission station had a nurse um, to provide that kind of medical care. Um, they also did some evangelizing and teaching. Um, now, usually of other women, but not always. There are exceptions to that. And then um, they provide labor to support missionary homes and the missionary stations. Now, I will say, especially indigenous women, I told you, I don't want to leave them out. I think often they remain nameless, faceless. That's why I use this picture here. This picture, I know it's hard to see, but um, these were some of the um, school girls, and I think it's today Zimbabwe, who were providing key labor to run the mission. Because <laughs> that's what happened. In order so that um, preachers could preach, and the preachers and the missionary wives could be you know, recruiting from home and doing their thing, they hired these folks to do all the work. Um, whether it be you know, cleaning, caring for children, um, all of those things. So without their labor, you don't have a successful mission. In fact, there's an example, I, this isn't right down this line, but I remember chuckling at one I read about a um, missionary whose wife had died on the mission field and how now they had to hire a whole bunch more people to take care of the work she did. <laughs> Evidence for my point. <laughs> Women saved money <laughs> on these and made it work. You just you don't have it. He couldn't do his work. He had children to take care of, a household to run. Because and that's why you'll notice any man who lost a wife in the missionary field either went home or married again quickly. <laughs> Those were the options. Uh, all right. So a couple examples along these lines. Um, in the early 1940s. Uh, a woman named Helen Johnson recruited among De uh, Detroit, Michigan churches, raised 600 bucks to build a home for the Shoemaker family in what was then called Southern Rhodesia, but now it's in Bombay. Um, and then on a slightly different example, I've mostly focused on overseas, but this one was really striking too. Uh, Mrs. Jessie B. Burns raised thousands of dollars for the Sunny Glen home in South Texas. Um, she was also the superintendent. Mostly the other firm foundation, she sent in regular reports, she wrote appeals, she kept this place going with hundreds of orphans there. Um, that was the one area where it was almost acceptable because you know in the New Testament said you have to take care of widows and orphans. Mm -hmm. So orphan home is the one exception to the no institutions and women dominated those almost always. Mm -hmm. um, not, oh, and, and as long as they said, and we're under the authority of this church with these elders, they were good. <laughs> Even though they did the work. Um, in terms of evangelizing and teaching, I could talk about numerous examples. One that really stands out is Sarah Andrews and Iki Nomura. Um, I'll tell you first about Sarah Andrews. Um, she'd grown up in Dixon, Tennessee. She heard, it, many of you may be familiar with um, McCaleb, who 
was a missionary to Japan, um, really towering figure in Church of Christ missions to Japan. And she heard him speak when she was young, I think barely a teenager, um, and then, or, or maybe mid-teens or so. Uh, but later, a few years later, after she hears him, she leaves for Japan. Within a few months of arriving, she meets Ikinomura, and they kind of form a partnership. And the two of them together would found about eight churches in the next few decades and nurture them, grow them, sustain them. They lasted, some of them even to this day, um, definitely not, yeah, four of them. Yeah, I haven't followed through on how many are still left. Me know more than I do about that. Well, Bonnie, Miller, Bonnie Miller told me yesterday she was wrong about eight. Yeah, I heard her say that too, and I can't remember how many she said. I stuck with what she said originally. Is it there four? were three before the war, and then uh, Lanzu after the war. Yeah. It was several, anyway. <laughs> yes. I heard her say that too. I can't remember the numbers. Well, I'll stick with what she had in the book. Yeah. Um, now, interesting thing about Sarah Andrews, um, she is um, interned during the war. Um, her health, but her health was so bad, they eventually let her go home, um, but banned her from any interaction. She's basically under house arrest. Um, but there were local Christians and others who kind of snuck her food, kept her just barely alive. She nearly starved. Um, and, but people snuck food to her at great risk to themselves. She makes it through the war, um, and is kind of held up as a local hero. Um, she, her work was generally well regarded by local governments um, and supported even in some. She provided education, ran a lot of schools. Um, that was a common model for the work in Japan. And so this is a unique area where women had a lot of free reign, actually, is on the mission field. There was a lot more that just needed to get done, so many people didn't really stop to quibble about, uh, you know, it's kind of that all hands on death mentality. You get a little more flexible about how are we gonna get all this work done. She was doing a number. Now she did tend to call in a male evangelist to actually baptize people, so I don't want to claim that she's out there running everything. Um, but still, the, the work she did was really amazing. Another woman, Margaret Hook, served in Zimbabwe. Um, she operated a boarding school housing over 100 African girls um, in 1947, many of whom she employed as teachers and workers. And I want to say that wasn't always the case. There were a lot of missionaries that simply felt that, that African women of any nation could not serve effectively as teachers. You know, you quite trust them. I mean, there, there was a lot of paternalism, outright racism. Um, but there were some who, and I think Hook was among them, who wanted that role. Perhaps not perfectly, but there were attempts. Um, and I will say, it was the work of these indigenous women that, again, was all about the success of these missions. And I can give you example after example of where this happened. I mean, you see Ikidemura. There, there's hardly, if you look closely at any missionary family, you will see that there were indigenous people that actually made their work work. Um, and Nora yeah. stayed with her her whole life. Yeah. Yeah. After even after Iki married, she stayed with her. And yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I wanted to at least mention her. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important that we remember that. You know, I think if there's one great thing about our modern world, at least we're kind of discovering, wait a minute, we gave all the credit to the missionaries, and in fact, to the extent they were successful, it was because of local people who showed them the way. Mm -hmm. um, let me, oh, this is the last one. I had one more I was gonna use as an example. Um, Sybil Rickman, uh, there's her full name more, Sybil Rickman Reese. She was a graduate of Harding College in 1946. She went to what is today Zambia, 
right after graduation. Later, though, would marry the son of local missionaries. Um, would spend her life teaching hundreds of African students, uh, many of them in Africa, but then returning. And she taught through um, World Bible School. A lot of women did that, where they did it through correspondence. Um, it was very common, men too. But for women, that was a role that was deemed acceptable. Um, she also, um, this is an example of a journalism part I wanted to circle back to. There was a publication that described the work of Church of Christ in Africa called Glimpses of Africa. It's basically the Journal of the African Missionaries. And she was one of the most frequent ones to raise funds in that journal, recruit more workers. They didn't even charge for it. They just send it. We take it, we'll give it to you. Because um, they wanted to send it out to, to try to get more funds, get more um, uh, support, get more workers. Um, and again, it's because women, you know, you've got the men out there preaching. And not that women have the free time, but that was a role they could take on. Um, that was part of that partnership. Um, okay, well those are just my samples of what kinds of things, yeah, of what kinds of things are going on. I want to save a little bit of time for questions, I can answer them. Um, yeah, we got eight minutes or so left to do that. Yes? Um, I just want to say I really appreciate your uh, insights on Christian Echo, even though it's in the 40s. I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm not that old where I wrote there, <laughs> but I did, I did actually write an article uh, I think I was in my 20s, my kids were still young, uh, an article about um, how our churches as a whole have forgotten our young children and encouraged them to have cradle roll in their churches. And at that time, I think we were living in Denver, and uh, I wrote an article to encourage the churches to, to really consider that our babies, they're great learners, mm -hmm. and, they're, they, and actually five and under is like the most open their brains are. And so just seeing you, you know, mentioned Christian uh, Echo was very important because that was the, that really was the paper um, until a few years ago. It moved to Southwestern campus that G.P. Bounds was a part of establishing right. Southwestern Christian College where we met. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's going on right now, but they kept it for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, I haven't, I haven't, this is as far as I've kind of gotten up here in the 40s and 50s. It's, it's still there. Is it I thought Pepperdine still got it. I've seen some recent issues. Yeah. Maybe not as widely distributed as one's thought. I haven't seen one lately, but uh, yeah. I was. But I appreciate. It. Anyway, you um, do you have you written any other material? Have you written any materials? Some. I would. I'd, I'd like to know. Get access to your materials that you've written. Yeah. Yeah, they're in a variety of places. I suppose one of my, I, I've written a lot of small pieces as I'm trying to put together this bigger thing. Yeah, I'm trying to put out smaller things and do Bible lectures and things that, that kind of summarize where I am right now. The most recent one, there were um, a group of scholars from like Abilene and Abilene Christian and Johnson University and a few other places put together a book called Shadows of Slavery. And I wrote one in there on women and race, and women and racial reconciliation, race relations. Um, throughout the history of the movement. That, um, so that's one thing I've done recently, and a few others. Yes? Has there been anything that like totally shocked you or surprised you when you've been playing with <laughs> Oh, I guess there's always things. My, my husband will hear about them sometimes. Like, can you believe this? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess one that I didn't necessarily, I don't know if this, this isn't necessarily in the vein of what I was talking about, but. Um, there was a woman who was missionary in China. Now, she's actually a disciples missionary, but you said this, and it just made me think of this. Minnie Valtrick is her name. I 
think I'm saying it right. She was a missionary to China um, and did a lot to when the um, when Japan invaded China. She was in um, <coughs> and now she so she used the campus of the college they had there to house as many Chinese women as possible to save them because. <coughs> The Japanese had come in to kind of just show the Chinese who were boss, and it was pretty brutal. And one of the ways they did that was by assaulting women. Um, and so she estimated our size 100,000 women, she did it on campus, and used like the American flag and, and to say, you mess with me, you know, I'm going to get the US government to come after you, and did all these like unique things. Um, it's really heroic what she did. Um, really amazing. Well, she comes home from after that experience and apparently had developed a raging case of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And eventually turns on the gas in her apartment and commits suicide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just the most depressing story. Uh, so this was a, the real deal of what some women did you know, on the mission field. So Neil, um, the, the thing has, that, I, that I don't see is education, women in her area. Yeah, I, I, I didn't think every, yeah. every project has its boundaries. Right, right. I didn't happen to go that many years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And tell me, the book you're going to write that you're working on, what's the scope, the chronology? Is it, is it? I'm going to try to do the whole thing, just keep this leadership theme. So like, this decade yeah. is, is kind of one way of organizing that material, but it's the leadership theme kind of. Yes, I haven't fully settled on how, I mean, I have a, I have a whole list of themes I'm going to address. I haven't yeah. fully settled on. Yeah. I'm going to try to break it up into some eras and discuss the from each era because it is so large. So exciting. So I'm trying to balance between saying something substantive and including as much narrative as possible to give people a sense of individuals and things, but yet also give it some cohesion where it's not just this. And not just 1800 pages. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's the other problem. Yeah. Yes, is you could easily do that. Yeah. So still working some of that out. But the leadership thing really helped me to focus it. Because yeah. all I'm asking is, where did women contribute? Mm -hmm. and that, but that leadership frame of bridge leadership really gives me something to look for. Mm -hmm. Where do we see that? <coughs> Places in different eras, where do I see it? Mm -hmm. Trace that story. Yeah. And then I'm hoping later in life to do many more things. I have a whole list of other things. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, like, somebody should write about many Bouchers. Nobody's really written about her very much. There's other scholars interested in her because of the craziness of that story, but not much is really answered. What's her last name? It's Vautrin, yeah. V-A-U-T-R-I-N. V-A-U-T-R-I-N. Yes. One of the interesting things about missionary history is because of the controversy uh, in the mid-20th century uh, over the millennial question, eschatological controversy. Uh, the names were carved off the monuments <laughs> of, of missionary families who had been associated with war um, work and the world movement. And, and so there, the, those histories were lost. They're being recovered now. Mm -hmm. But as far as kind of, when I arrived at Harding College in 1968, everybody was saying, well, we started our mission work after World War II. Uh, no. <laughs> yes, there's plenty going on before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's, it's really kind of helped me see a whole new era of, of work. Yeah. My grandmother was a minister's wife from the 30s to the 60s, and, and 
doctor, and I, you know, and I loved her beyond words, and just salt of the earth, and served, and never only had good things to say about people. But it was only when she died that I found out how popular she was on speaking circuits with women, and the the the, the thing projects she led as a preacher's wife for the hungry. The, I, things piled up, and I and, and you couldn't. Couldn't love her more than I already did, but when I learned all that, wow! Wish I'd have known that when I was younger. Yeah, we we just don't tend to focus on it enough. Um, that's some of it, and that's human nature, probably. You know, we look for the big names. You know, who was um, doing all the preaching and teaching, and um, and it was so behind the scenes that the work that women did that we don't understand the depth and magnitude of it. And she was that type that was always pointing to other people yeah. and to her husband. Yeah. And that's some of it. You know, some yeah. of it is gender tendencies. You know, yeah. I don't want to speak too much in a stereotypical yeah. way. But, right. You know, that's more likely to be many women would be not. Yeah. That's their socialization. Yes, that's another element. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, among the things that uh, some of the most interesting things that I have found along this line of bridge leadership happened very early in the and one of them is, it would have taken a whole lot longer to get to, you know, what's the main hallmarks of this movement at the very beginning? And that those are going to be things like adult baptism, um, and I'm blanking on what I wanted to say. Anyway, it's the main one. That's the one I want to focus on anyway. That would have been one of the doctrines that in, in the early 19th century would have defined, you know, what Bartonstone and Alexander Campbell were doing is different from what other folks were doing. Well, the way they came to that, each of them, because the, I'll, I'll tell you part of his own story. In his autobiography, because I, that's where I started. I'm like, okay, I've got to get like a little. Why don't I read and see what they say about women? Because there's oh, they're so precious little sources. And boy, stuff jumped out of the page when you go looking for it that I never heard before. Like, Stone tells a story of the way he came to adult baptism is um, because a woman came up to him and said, I think we should be baptized as an adult, and I want you to baptize me. And he said, oh, I've kind of been thinking about that. But let me go think it over, talk to some people. He did, he came out, she was the first one he got that. And Campbell's story, pretty similar. Yes, it was. And so, you know, I'm just arguing, look, it was a partnership. Women asked questions, they were there, they knew what was happening, they participated in debates. They just didn't write the sermons and deliver them in public. But they were shaping said sermons behind the scenes. With Campbell, it was his daughter. Yes. And another, um, there's another story that one of the other preachers, I'm blanking on which one it is now, that wrote a biography um, of another preacher and talked about Campbell's experience too. He said he talked to an old woman and he said, examples about of the women in his life that pushed him toward that. That's just one example, there's a ton. Um, and so that's why I'm saying, I'm not trying to say that women ran the world or men ran the world, it was that there was this partnership um, where both were critical to how the movement grew and developed. And if we only got one part of the story, we might be left with this sentence. I, I, I'll see this all the time, you know, about, you know, my students will be resistant to women's history. Like if I spent half the time on that, well, you're leaving out all this important stuff. No, I'm not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it, it matters just as much. I'm not saying it matters more, but it's funny how much if you talk about women's history, people think you are saying that. It's because we're so used to hearing Men is the only thing that matters. But if you do talk about what women are doing, people then react with this, well, now you're trying to say it's all about women. No. Mm -hmm. Simply trying to 
bring about a balanced record. Mm -hmm. uh, at least that's my take on it sometimes. Although I think that's getting less so as time goes on. People are more and more interested in the balance there. Well, other questions? Oh, I guess we're not yeah, time. Yeah, so. three. Oh, do I have till three? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. I thought it was too far. I guess I didn't lengthen it this year today. Oh, okay. So a few more minutes then. Any other? I was understood that there were actually some circuit preachers back in the late 1800s that were women. Did, did we loosen up a little bit and tighten up again as far as? Well, there's a couple different eras where that comes up. One is very early, where there were fluid relationships with other groups that will eventually split off and find the Stone Camel part of the movement a little too restrictive. Mm -hmm. But in the early era, so you have a very early era where you do have women preaching with ties to what Stone Camel are doing, especially Stone. Um, and then in the late 19th century, um, the more disciples-oriented branch will have a lot more women who, and, and this is coming out of, you know, the Civil War, where, mm -hmm. you know, women are not much more educated, and they've been participating, because it's the same thing in the Civil War, that old hand on that thing. Um, and so, uh, in other words, a lot more women get that kind of experience. Or maybe they're in an area where there aren't any men, male preachers, and they just kind of do their thing. Um, and so you, you do have another era that... Less common among Churches of Christ, though, it, and harder to document. Um, one of the problems is Church of Christ congregations don't like to write their histories because that seems like a worldly thing to do. So as a historian, I'm like, just written this. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you can find them, but they tend to be the less typical congregations. They're more the urbanized ones that might be not quite typical, but. Sometimes, I mean, I've found all kinds of interesting things along the way that I'm trying to piece together to create the story. Did I see other hands? I just, I just wondered, you're talking about women preachers in the late 1800s. I just wondered, you know, after the Civil War, there were not that many men available and women had to take on. And, and I believe after World War One, there were many, the only option for women after World War One to marry, not the only option, but the major option was either you marry a man much older than you, or you marry a man that came back missing a woman who was wounded. Yeah, I think that's particularly true in the Civil War. Yeah. Probably less so after World War One. That one's probably one of the least impact on the U.S., but but that's very true after the Civil War. Yeah. Well, it was true in Europe. Yeah, yeah Europe more. Yes. Europe so if you're talking about Europe, yes. yes. In the U.S., so, a little bit less. So I think that impacted the fact there wasn't a lot of men preachers, so women, like you say, they fill in. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that was often what happened. Um, you and I, I wish I don't know if I'll ever know the exact number. I may eventually try to make a list, but I'm estimating that at least thirty to fifty percent of all churches were founded by women. Mm -hmm. Ish. I don't know if I can fully document that. Because churches don't always admit that it happened. Because um, the way it would work is you'd have a group of women that get together and start their worship. Um, and they'd do that for months, years, however long. And then decide, okay, we, you know, we can do a church. And so they in, you know, find a preacher. Sometimes they'll advertise in one of the journals. Hey, we got a church for a preacher who's ready to come. But then when they, if there's any history written in that church, this church started when brother so-and-so came and, you know. <laughs> I have found that, where that happened, where I knew this story about these women, but then I heard this other, the other story about found it by this preacher so-and-so. I'm like, oh, that happened. So I don't even know. I can't document how many that happened that way. Um, so in other words, it's that partnership thing. Those again. records tend to be held by the county families. 
Yeah, and, and so in other words, I, I, you don't know how much energy I have to try to help. <laughs> you know, I do try to. I've found a few. And uh, Stephen Lindley's great grandmother started the first Church of Christ in East County, Texas, and the same pattern. She started. They started meeting, and then they called in somebody to do a gospel meeting, and then you know, the, the, I've seen the Church Covenant. Yeah, that, that was extremely common. That's why I say it could even be more than 50%, actually, you just don't know um, about that. Um, I've been in churches where the worship leader was a woman. She sat down. Yes, the oh, I, there's all kind of models. Yeah, they'd sit in the front and maybe sing the first line and then be quiet. There's a little boy up there. Yeah, yeah there, that, was, that was particularly common in Northern Church of Christ. That's where I run into that. And it, I, it, you do chuckle about it today in a, in a certain sense because it seems kind of like do it that way. <laughs> but, but then it makes a certain amount of sense if you look at the context. Like we're trying to make it work. None of the men can sing. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I travel quite a bit in Africa and in Swaziland there's a congregation in uh, Matsapa and there's an elder who readily admits that he stands up there to make it look like there's a man in charge but uh, everybody knows that it's a lady sitting down like a six rows from the front who's actually reading the songs. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, it actually becomes a much more complicated issue than it looks on the surface. Because um, I've had some, you know, even scholars of you know church history who are pointing out to me that um, often, you know, what's most difficult for churches is the lack of male leadership, um, and that when that withers, it, it's not so much that women aren't good enough; it's that it's not healthy to have. It, and that's been our challenge in the current era. Yeah, you have enough women to step up to do things, but then our real challenge is, yes, but we still need male leadership, too. <laughs> Maybe less so in church Christ, but in some other parts of the Zoom Campbell movement, that can be an issue as well. Um, so it's actually a complex one. I don't want to make it sound like this is simply a matter of, oh, we have to overcome, you know, not having enough women leaders. It's not that simple. Um, anyway, just to make it a little more complex. <laughs> is there any direction you could give as far as written material that's out there that addresses uh, the role of women historically in any kind of way? Yeah, yeah. I would um, mostly recommend the new global history of the Stone County Well, it's not new anymore, it's That one covers quite a bit. That's what inspired me, actually. I was a part of that project. We had 14 authors that came together to write these different pieces. and. When I walked out of there, they gave me the job of writing all the parts on non-American and non-white women. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, that's what got me started, and I realized, whoa, there are a lot of stories to tell here, and that's why I've gone on this project that I'm doing now. But that one is a great start. And they, they essentially had someone else that was able to write stuff on women, and so they did that, and then I filled in these other things, and American women anyway. That's a great start. It was a good book. I just felt like there's so much more. Stone Campbell. Yeah, it's called, what is it, The Stone Campbell Movement of Global History, I think okay. the title of it. Yeah, it's on Amazon. Yeah. It's pretty large volume, it's like No, that was the encyclopedia. This one was like 2010 or 12, 2012, I think, actually. So it's not that. Yes. Yeah, that one I always remember that I found out I was going to be writing that when I was pregnant with my first child. Went to the first author's meeting with a six-week-old. 
<laughs> yeah, the book would have been done a couple of years ago, but for having three children. <laughs> in two years. Oh, well, they're getting a bit older now, so I'm kind of in Yeah, as soon as this is over, I'm taking off to so what are my books on that yet? <laughs> <laughs> I work on it a little bit sometimes. There are several different kinds of articles. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe one or two last questions before we wrap up. Anything else? Yes. Um, I'm up in Lewiston, Idaho, and we're, I've been there seven years. And two years ago, we celebrated our 100th anniversary as a church. And I did a lot of research to write the history of that 100 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was able to uh, talk to some of the uh, elderly people who have since passed away. Mm -hmm. I caught them just in time, in a sense. Mm -hmm. and, and in telling that story, uh, I emphasized the value of, or at least I didn't miss the value of the stories I was told about how hospitality ministries mm -hmm. made it work. Mm -hmm. and, you know, no agenda on any side of the roles, but it made that church last and grow. The, they, were, they were constantly, every church, every church service was followed by a big dinner where no one would leave until five or six in the evening. And women really pulled together for that. That's why that church lasted, really. Yes, and I, I didn't get into all the nuances of it, but that, that's what you'll find when you start looking at it. It's easy to dismiss it. Because like, I guess I did get into it a little bit with that you know, cake and candy may not sound like a big deal. Yeah. Um, but it's what can open someone's heart. Oh, someone made this and you know, gave this. Um, and, and I think that's a smaller piece of what you're saying. Yeah. That that hospitality was important to the health yeah. of a gathering, any gathering, whether it's a campaign that you're conducting or, or you know, a church. Yeah. And we're, a traditional church. Yeah. we're a traditional church, but, but the value of it yeah. needed to be said. Yes, and that, that I, I guess I do see that sort of as a form of leadership that women exerted yeah. in, in terms of you know, um, promoting the health of the body mm -hmm. through everyone gathering together, fellowship. I mean, after all, that's pretty scriptural, too, you know, like break bread together and spend time together. It's like part of it. And there's a reason for that, right? We all know that works. Yeah, they they and, found something important that they were allowed to do, and they did it. That's true, too. Yeah, yeah I've heard that it, some people make a little joke about it. It's funny that women aren't allowed to, you know, pass out the Lord's Supper, and that girl's like, ooh, you're supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. If you look at it that way, <laughs> it does seem kind of funny uh, from that angle. But, but yeah. It creates some of our own problems. When, when you have house churches, I think that issue kind of disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't want anyone to hear me say that. I say it's all simple. If we just did A, B, and C, then it would all be easy. Um, because that's not true either. There are competing um, competing challenges. You know, whichever direction you go with what roles are like. Like I was saying, it sounds yes, it sounds wonderful to have this huge number of female leaders, but then sometimes you can get into a problem. Wait, what's happening to male leadership? You know, in some parts. That's not good, um, and so that's. I guess you know. Partly, I can leave you with that. Is that I feel like, boy, in my mind, when you read scripture, the, thing, the one thing you're left with is God wants us to wrestle. 
with things because sometimes it's a little ambiguous about where we go. And, uh, but I hope that what I've said here at least opens up other possibilities um, about what we need to value and appreciate about our history. It's very important work for you to do. Yeah. We're so grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.